The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts to the Lord. We welcome you to Marsh Chapel on this summer Sunday as we join together in scripture and song and praise of God. Whether you are seated here in the nave of the chapel, listening live via WBUR at 90.9 FM in the greater Boston area, listening over the internet at WBUR.org, or listening later via the podcast, please know that you are a valued part of our community. My name is Jessica Chica, and I have the pleasure of serving as University Chaplain for International Students here at Marsh Chapel. Our Dean, the Reverend Dr. Robert Allen Hill, is traveling this week and sends his warm regards to each of you. Today we continue our summer preaching series toward a common hope with our guest preacher and colleague, the Reverend Victoria Hart Gaskell. Reverend Gaskell serves as the Chapel Associate for Methodist Students here at Marsh Chapel. We look forward to the words of hope Reverend Gaskell will offer us today. We gather today to worship God and be reminded of the divine gifts of grace and love which join us together in the body of Christ. Let us stand as we are able in praise of God.
Let us pray. O Lord, mercifully receive the prayers of your people who call upon you, and grant that they may know and understand what things they ought to do, and also may have grace and power faithfully to accomplish them. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. We now enter into a time of reflection on both the things that we have done and the things that we have left undone that might burden us throughout our days. As the choir sings the Kyrie, let us pray, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy, Lord, have mercy. hear the good news. God, who is rich in mercy, loved us even when we were dead in sin and made us alive together with Christ. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter said, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? 
How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. Now when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard of it. The young men came and wrapped up his body, then carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, Tell me whether you and your husband sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and died. When the young men came in, they found her dead, so they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of these things. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Beloved, I invite you to join me in reading responsively verses from Psalm 92 with the Antiphon. to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. In old age, they still produce fruit. They are always green and full of sap. Showing that the Lord is upright, he is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Beloved, I invite you to rise as you're able for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of the gospel. The Holy Gospel of our Lord, Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke, chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Glory Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated.
When I was younger in the faith, I spent a lot of time doing what many folks younger in the faith do. I went through the Bible looking for the parts they don't tell you about in Sunday school. And that is when I first read the story of Ananias and Sapphira. At the time, I thought it was one of the most disturbing stories I have ever read. Terrifying, even, what with people dropping dead in a church meeting. I still think it is a disturbing story, now for different reasons, and apparently I am not the only one. In years in the church, I have never heard it preached, and most recommended Bible commentaries don't comment much on it at all. The sermons on the internet that deal with it focus almost exclusively on Ananias and Sapphira's deaths. They ignore other elements in the story that equally provoke thought and disturb. Now, in elements in a Bible story that provoke thought and disturb, or the story itself, are so ignored, it almost always means the Bible story deserves a second look. For instance, Ananias and Sapphira's story placement in the act's larger narrative instructs as well as shocks. The story raises the complex and oh-so-contemporary issue of the lie. And it is a story that involves the Holy Spirit. It is because of these other elements, not just the deaths, that I preach on it this morning in our preaching series context of a common hope. First, let's look at the story's placement in the larger narrative of Acts. It comes after Luke's description of the beginning of the church. In the beginning, the members were of one heart and soul in their beliefs and in their life together. All their resources were held in common. The apostles gave their witness to the resurrection with great power, and great grace was upon everyone. No one wanted for anything, because those who had private resources sold them and brought the proceeds to the apostles for redistribution, as did Barnabas, the son of encouragement. It was truly the beloved and loving community, the hope of return to which inspires the church to this day. But in this beloved and loving community are also Ananias and Sapphira. They also agree to sell a piece of property, but give only the part of the proceeds to the apostles for distribution. They keep the rest for themselves. And here is the crux of the story. They tell the apostles they have given the whole amount. They lie. Have you noticed how so few people lie nowadays? They fib, prevaricate, misspeak, misunderstand, deceive, mislead, tell whoppers, are disingenuous, tell white lies, fudge or fuzz the truth, skirt the issue, deviate from the truth, slander, libel, trump up charges, pad a resume or an expense account, present and spread fake news, but they don't lie. Actually, to call someone a liar or something a lie is apparently almost too strong too judgmental on what seems to be a social rather than a moral scale. Even in the media, even in government, no one lies. No one is even an alleged liar. To say they lie 
seems to say too much. But Peter, of course, being Peter, has no such care for social niceties. He clearly expresses the enormity of what Ananias and Sapphira have done. It has nothing to do with the fact that they kept back part of the proceeds. They could just as well have kept back the whole amount or not sold the property at all. But they lied and said they had given the whole. And by that lie, as Peter points out, they have done so much more. They have listened to Satan, the one who works against Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the one who is the tempter in the wilderness against Jesus' own integrity and self-understanding and against the Holy Spirit's leading. Even though the community will be affected, their lie to the community pales in comparison to the fact that they have lied to God, in particular to the Holy Spirit, who guides and sustains them all. And they have put the Holy Spirit to the test. The lie is an attempt to undermine the Spirit's presence and its power in the face of the lie's creation of mistrust and confusion. Finally, their lie will come back on Ananias and Sapphira. For whatever reason, and debate rages, the lie is a prelude not just to embarrassment, not just to difficulty, but to their death. And interestingly enough, at the end of the story, the beloved community, which began as the whole group of those who believed, has become the church, the ecclesia, the people called out and gathered to be God's people. They are now distinct from those who surround them because they know that the lie is within them as well as without. Their hope is under threat, and now they have to make choices. And great fear has come upon them and everyone who hears the story of Ananias and Sapphira. The church in Acts is still the beloved community. They still have a common hope. But now they know that the dangers to their mutuality and mission and hope can come from within as well as without. Distrust and betrayal are now possibilities even among the beloved. And they know that these dangers from within begin with the lie. The noted moral philosopher, peace activist, and ethicist Cicela Bach, in her landmark book, Lying, Moral Choice in Public and Private Life, notes that now it is even hard to decide what a lie is. She focuses on what she defines as clear-cut lies. These are lies where the intention to mislead is obvious and intended, where the liar knows that what they are communicating is not what they believe, and where they have not deluded themselves into believing their own deceits. Bach defines a lie as any intentionally deceptive message that is stated, whether verbally, written, sent by Morse code, sign language, signal flags, or so on. Note the emphasis on intention and statement 
It is not the truth or falsity of what a person says that settles the question of whether or not that person lies. It is whether or not they intend their statement to be a lie. The presence of intention points up the great paradox of the lie. We more often than not lie with good intent. As Bach notes, we lie to excuse ourselves or to get ourselves out of something without causing offense. We lie to protect and advance our standing and our place in the world. We lie to save ourselves and others in a crisis. We lie to expose liars. We lie to enemies to defeat them. We lie to protect our children, friends, and clients. We lie for the public good, and we lie to people for their own good, especially if they are very ill or dying or if we have power over them. All we want to do is make life easier for ourselves and others. All we want to do is help. Everybody lies, and no one drops down dead. It's true that the results of their lie were extreme for Ananias and Sapphira, but every lie bears a cost to both the liar and the ones lied to. Bach makes the connection between deception and violence as the two forms of deliberate assault on human beings. Both coerce, but the lie is the more subtle. It works on belief as well as action. A lie forces because it intends that someone believes something that is not true. Iago did not need to kill Atao. He only had to lie to him and have him believe it to destroy him. Bach also notes that lying almost always accompanies every other form of wrongdoing and harm. Murder, theft, bribery, and so on almost require that one lie. Lying almost always accompanies other, many other forms of human misery as well. Sam Harris is a neuroscientist, philosopher, writer, and podcast host. He is famous also for being one of the four horsemen of atheism. I do not agree with all of his ideas. However, in his book, Lying, he has some ideas that I do agree with. He connects lies with the perpetuation of addiction and of dom domestic violence and with the self-sabotage of family relationships, careers, and reputations. He notes that as human beings, we often act in ways that are guaranteed to make us unhappy and calls lying the royal road to chaos. In particular, he notes that white lies are the ones that most tempt us and tend to be the only lies that good people tell while imagining that they are being good in the process. He also suggests that the lies we tell for the good of others presume that we are the best judges of how much the other people should understand about their own lives. This is an arrogant position that disrespects those we claim to care about. In any case, Bach and Harris both note that lying always requires a reason, a justification. One has to convince oneself to lie, and if found out, one needs to convince others that the lie was necessary. The costs of lying are different for those deceived and for the liar, but they often are at great costs for both. For the deceived, 
when we find out that we have been lied to, <coughs> for whatever reason, none of us likes it. Even in small things, we may be angry or feel betrayed. Suspicion is now part of the relationship. If someone will lie to us in small things, why wouldn't they lie to us in big things too? If it is a big lie, we may mourn the choices we were unable to make or the things we would have done differently had we known the truth. Or we may lose faith in the persons or institutions that we once believed in. If a single person or a small group, is persons, a small group of persons is lied to, a great number of people may still be hurt by the lie, as when a public health official is lied to about the purity of a city's water system. While the costs to those lied to may be more obvious, <clears throat> there are costs to the liar as well. Liars know that they lie. They intend to lie and to have that lie believed. A liar then has to regard those they have lied to with caution. They have to remember what lies they have told to specific people and be careful not to get mixed up. Once they have lied, it becomes easier to tell more lies. This ups the risk of getting caught, and if they are caught, the damage to their credibility and reputation far outweighs any benefits they may have obtained from the lie. And while liars may take into account the effect their lie may have on an individual, they do not always realize the ways that these effects may spread to affect whole communities in negative ways, including the communities of which they are a part. We in our time know the costs of the lie, both as we are lied to by people and institutions we have trusted, and as we are caught up in the temptation to lie, if only to make our lives a little easier. And yet it is also all too easy to imagine our society, our communities, our lives, sliding into a state where words cannot ever be trusted again. Technology makes this seem more likely, but even more, there is in our time an aversion to telling the truth. It's too difficult. It takes too much time and effort. It is not as effective for what we want as is the violence of the lie. Even in the church, we often lie, especially white lie, because to have a telling the truth in love and mutuality conversation with someone seems too intrusive or fraught or complicated. In fact, if we do not have that conversation, we may deny that person a chance to learn more about themselves and us in ways that might help heal or reconcile them with us, with others, with themselves. The beloved community that holds a common hope seems more and more like an unreachable ideal, certainly in society and even in the church, certainly if the lie becomes entrenched and is not exposed and rooted out for what it is. The lie is a cheat against the community, against the individual, and even against the liar. It sets up a false goal of superficiality and complacency rather than the love that and justice that God intends for human beings and for creation. 
Fortunately, while the spirit may be put to the test, that does not mean that the spirit cannot pass the test and then do even more. Cicela Bach wrote her book first in 1979, another time of big and small lies in the country and in the world, and her book has gone through two more editions since. She notes that due to people who exposed and rejected lies, some things have changed. Doctors used to lie routinely to their patients as to the state of their health and the probabilities of procedures. Indeed, given interpretations of patient confidentiality, they often found themselves lying to one patient while preserving the confidentiality of another. Now there are prohibitions against lying and requirements for informed consent. Scientific researchers and behavioral researchers often did not inform their subjects as to what actually was being done to them or the true aims of the research. Now, are the, now there are privacy mandates and requirements for informed consent and control by the subjects of the research. Exposures of the lies of government and other institutions have brought about more healthy skepticism and more demands for institutional accountability. Fact checkers and investigative reporting are now integrated into public life. Recently, Standing Rock, Black Lives Matter, Flint, Michigan, women's marches, and demonstrations for immigration reform have put on notice the status quo of lies and violence against people and creation. Both Bach and Harris also suggest that if people still insist on lying, there should be a sort of agreed-upon just-lie theory, rather like a just-war theory. It would begin with the questioning of the necessity for lying at all and go on to mitigate as many negative effects of the lie as possible. But perhaps Harris the atheist has the most thought-provoking idea for a common hope. It would promote the benefits of telling the truth most or even all of the time. So there's nothing to keep track of. We don't have to justify ourselves. We, as honest persons for others and other honest people for us, become a refuge. We mean what we say. We won't say one thing to others' faces and another behind their backs. Both our constructive criticism and our praise can be relied upon. We can honestly change our minds, and we can be open about our doubts and fears. We will avoid many forms of suffering and embarrassment. While there may be discomfort, it will be short-lived because we can be kind in telling the truth to others. We don't want to offend them or hurt them. We just want them to have the same knowledge we have and would want in the same situation. Through telling the truth, we can also learn new ways we want to grow and learn. The American author and humorist Mark Twain wrote, When in doubt, tell the truth. It will confound your enemies and astound your friends. While the lie sets us up for misery, there is humor and joy in telling the truth. In the beloved community, telling the truth is a foundation for a common hope. It is a foundation for love, joy, peace, justice, kindness, and compassion in that common hope. 
It sets us up for a common hope for right relationship with God, self, and all the neighbors. It removes obstacles to the Holy Spirit's work and is a big part of our cooperation with that spirit and its work. The story of Ananias and Sapphira is a story of the fall in the beloved community of the church, the story of the shaking of the common hope. When we as members and restorers of the beloved community and our common hope tell the truth, we reverse that story and bring back the mutuality and trust and hope intended for God's people and for creation. Amen. be seated. As we come to a time in our service where, as a community, we lift our prayers and praises to God, I invite you to assume a posture of prayer that will help you to join your spirit in prayer with those around you, whether remaining seated, coming to kneel at the altar rail, or standing as the choir leads us in our call to prayer. Lead me, Lord.
In peace, we pray to you, Lord God. For all people in their daily life and work, for our families, friends, and neighbors, and for those who are alone, for those whose names and faces we lift up now in the silence of our hearts. For this community, for the nation, and for the world, for all who work for justice, freedom, and peace, and for all the causes and cares we lift up now in the silence of our hearts. For the just and proper use of your creation, for the victims of hunger, fear, injustice, and oppression, for those whom we know and those who are known only to you that we lift up now in the silence of our hearts. For all those who are in danger, sorrow, or any kind of trouble, and for those who care for the sick, the friendless, and the needy, for those whom we know, and those who are known only to you, that we lift up now in the silence of our hearts. For the peace and unity of the Church of God, for all who proclaim the gospel and all who seek the truth, for those whose names and faces we lift up now in the silence of our hearts. For all who lead us in becoming better disciples of Christ and for all who serve God in the church, for those, those who have formed us, whose names and faces we lift up now in the silence of our hearts. And for the special needs and concerns of this congregation, near and far, and for all those whose names we lift up now in the silence of our hearts. Hear us, O Lord, in our silence and in our speaking, for your mercy is great. Amen. And now, with the confidence of children of God, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
Good morning. We welcome you again to the nave of Marsh Chapel this morning. Thank you for joining us today. For those of you who are seated here in the sanctuary, we invite you to fill out your name and contact information in the red pads found along the center aisle of each pew. This will help you to get to know one another and for us to get to know you as well. Following the service, please join us for refreshments and fellowship downstairs in the Marsh Room for our summer lemonade and cookie hour. Next week, we will continue our summer preaching series toward a common hope with our guest preacher, the Reverend Dr. Regina Walton. Reverend Dr. Walton is the pastor and rector at Grace Episcopal Church in Newton Corner, Massachusetts, as well as the denominational counselor for Episcopal and Anglican students and instructor in church polity at Harvard Divinity School. Please join us as we welcome her back to the pulpit here at Marsh Chapel next week. Summertime in the city also usually equals construction time in the city. For those of you seated here in the pews or planning on attending our services on July 29th or August 5th, we want to alert you to the construction plan for the Commonwealth Ave Bridge starting on July 27th and expected to end on August 11th. Similar to last year, access on Commonwealth Avenue will be limited, if not completely prevented, but detour routes have been planned out. Marsh Chapel will remain open during the construction and Sunday services will continue as normal. For those of you seated in the pews, the insert in today's bulletin describes how to access the chapel during the construction period. Maps displaying the routes are available in the narthex and downstairs uh, at the main office. For more information about the construction and detours, you can uh, log on to bu.edu slash capbridge, that's C-A-P, bridge, B-R-I-D-G-E. For all other news and upcoming events, please visit the chapel website at bu.edu slash chapel, where there is also the opportunity for online giving. Now, as the ushers wait upon us for the offering, may we remember that it is a gift and a discipline to be a giver.
Almighty God, may we be faithful stewards of your world, both in word and deed. Receive these tithes and offerings for continued ministry and service in this place in partnership with the Holy Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. And now, beloved, let us go from this place in peace to tell the truth, 
to, and to live our lives toward a common hope of justice, mercy, and peace in our lives, in the church, in our communities, and in all of creation. In the name of God who makes us, who loves us, who keeps us in everything, amen.